Oh, hi. I'm your host, Kyle Brownrigg, and welcome to Best Actress, discussing Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress Oscar wins, who we feel should have won, and why. For the best performance of an actress, the Academy has nominated these five gifted ladies. Miss Samantha Eager in The Collector, Miss Simon Signore in Ship of Fools, Miss Julie Christie in Darling, Miss Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music, Miss Elizabeth Hartman in A Patch of Blue. May I have the results of the ballot, please? The winner is Julie Christie. Hello and welcome to another episode of Best Actress. Today we're going to be talking about the 1966 ceremony year win for Julie Christie. Uh, the Okay, so a couple things before we jump into this. Best Picture uh, in 1966 went to The Sound of Music, um, as well as Best Director went to Robert Wise for The Sound of Music. Uh, Best Supporting Actress went to Shelley Winters for A Patch of Blue, a very troubling performance. <laughs> We'll talk about that. Uh, Best Supporting Actor went to Martin Balsam for A Thousand Clowns, a.k.a. any open mic lineup. Uh, And Best Actor went to Lee Marvin for Cat Baloo. Uh, Today I'm joined by a person who has previously been on this podcast before. He is a friend. He is a comedian in Toronto. Uh, He also has a debut album coming out this year, debut comedy album coming out this year called Dick Jokes for Jesus. It's Joe Arsenal. Hi, Joe. Hey, Kyle. Good to be back. Yay. I'm so glad that you are here. And I'm so glad that we have uh, a gay guy return for this. You know, we got to have, because I noticed I'm like, I have a lot of straight guys on this show. Yeah. Talking about the Academy Awards with straight people is somehow dissatisfying. Don't it, you find? It's so true. It's just a, it's just a gay thing. <laughs> um, or at least we all seem to enjoy it. Well, that I do. <laughs> hey, it's the only TV show I could watch growing up that said it was bad gay men were dying, so I'm loyal for life. <laughs> um, let's... Okay, so I always like to ask people why they pick a certain year, and because we're getting into the more classic era, I always find it interesting who's pe- wh- who, what my guests choose. Um... Because a lot of these choices are, they tend to be either completely random or they're like, this is, I have a, I have a stake in this year. Uh, why Julie Christie Darling year? Well, I mean, uh, when we get to the, um, this will soon become apparent because you're going to hear me geek out like a fanboy. I just, I'm a sucker for glamour and 60s British style Ooh. and, um, I mean, Julie Christie to me is peak glamour and peak talent, and uh, I, I'm so excited we get to talk about her. Uh, and, uh, you know, but we'll see, but uh, I, no actress has ever had a better year oh, wow. than that year. So I cannot wait to disagree with you. This is going to be <laughs> so fun. Um, we may come to blows if you hate on Julie Christie. Okay, okay, no spoilers. <laughs> Let's get to it. Well, the last episode we did, I think, was... Um, Elizabeth Taylor, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is like regarded as like one of the greatest wins of all time. And I literally had to change my address because <laughs> it was one of my least favorite years I have ever done on the podcast, period. But what's funny is when Elizabeth Taylor won for Butterfield 8, to which Elizabeth Taylor has publicly denounced as, quote, a piece of shit, mm-hmm. I said that she should have won because I thought it was like the campiest, most amazing movie I've ever seen. <laughs> 
I'll have to watch that one. I've only seen Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. It's it's just a slut shaming vehicle, mm. and um, surely McLean should have won for the apartment, mm. and it's really no question. But when you watch, if you watch it as a gay man for the camp quality of it, it's like yeah, Elizabeth Taylor should have won because <laughs> she almost died. She had a tracheotomy, so the Academy was like, and at that time she was like stealing everybody's husbands and. <laughs> They were like, we hate you. Uh, but then when she almost died, they were like, oh, no, actually, we do love you. Here's an Academy Award. And then uh, Shirley MacLaine was like, I famously lost that Oscar to a tracheotomy. <laughs> anyway, long story short, uh, I guess where I guess I tend to like things that people hate and the things that people uh, love, I hate. So <laughs> Let's be contrarian together. Absolutely, yes. Except perhaps not you in this episode. You are going to be celebrating Julie Christie. Not that I didn't enjoy this movie, but we'll get into it. Oh, I have unpopular opinions. Don't worry, you'll see. I'm excited for them. Um, so let's, as a jump, because I know that you said that you wanted to do Julie and Julie back-to-back, so we'll just save that for later. Uh, so let's start with probably the easiest place to start, which would be Simone Signore uh, mm. for Ship, uh, a Ship of Fools. Um, so very quickly, um, a brief little IMDb plot description. A varied group of passengers boarding a ship bound for pre-World War II Germany represents a microchasm of early 1930s society. So basically, um, Simone uh, Signore and Oscar Werner, who was actually nominated for Best Actor, uh, the two of them were, were this... Uh, she is going back to Spain, coming from Cuba to go to jail and spend the rest of her life in jail. I can't exactly figure out why that was, but we'll talk about that. <laughs> and then Oscar Werner was the doctor who had to take care of her because she had like an opiate addiction. Mm -hmm. And then anyway, they the unlikely pair ended up like, it turned into like the love boat <laughs> and everybody, they fell in love, <clears throat> excuse me. And then it, they have a tragic ending where... Uh, he dies, and then she goes off to actually be uh, a prisoner in Spain. So it's a, a tragic ending. But their relationship, out of all of the various stories and um, characters, got singled out by the Academy as perhaps the most compelling, and they decided to nominate it. Um, uh, Vivian Lee is in this movie as kind of the main actress and honestly I actually found her a little bit more captivating mm. and to be a little bit more interesting because she's kind of just this like beautiful but kind of just like over it 40 something and uh, she kind of is at that point in her life where her beauty can't necessarily speak for itself because men are starting to become frustrating with her and when she beats the shit out of that guy <laughs> for coming into his, her room when he was drunk mistaking her room for like that uh, Mexican woman's, or was it Cuban? They picked up a bunch of uh, deportees. Uh, there was a lot of racism in this movie. <laughs> it was kind of hard to keep up with, but when Vivian Lee just beats the shit out of him with the shoe, I thought that was the most <laughs> hilarious part because she was like taking off all her makeup and making it a mess. Like, am I pretty now, mommy? And it, it was just, I just, I love the tragic trope of like, you know, the, the, the the aging movie queen having to have these like ridiculous moments. And 
Anyway, <laughs> we're supposed to be talking about Simone Singer right here. So she is the, uh, okay, so this movie is long. It's like two and a half hours. I got to say, I actually didn't mind this movie, um, but Simone Singer for me wasn't really the star. It really was for me personally, Vivian Lee. What did you think of the movie and um, what did you think of Simone Signore's performance? Yeah, I was surprised how much I enjoyed the movie. Um, I, I like how it, it's fascinating because it's a 1960s vehicle and it's nostalgic because most of the audience for this movie would have remembered a time when you had to cross the ocean on a ship rather than on a plane. Um, so, you know, it was interesting to see what aspects of shipboard travel they kind of remembered. I think that was a lot of the reason the movie was a big hit. Mm. Um, Nostalgic and, for the boat days. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> There's something to that, right? Yeah. Uh, if you were above board. <laughs> yeah, right. My grandmother got married in 1952, and uh, she, to get to Europe, yeah, for their honeymoon, uh, they started in Ireland. They had to take a boat. Oh, my grandparents flew, so there's that. Um, <laughs> the privilege. <laughs> I really, I mean, it's 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 almost like an omnibus film. How there's all these different stories, and they don't all really intersect. Uh, and some of the, they're all at different levels of sophistication. And I really found Simone Signoret's performance to be the most modern and realistic one. It was a really sympathetic and, you know, uh, eyes clear, uh, clear-eyed portrait of addiction and decline in a movie that was otherwise not as serious. So I was really glad to see her get the nomination. But I agree with you that I especially was drawn to focusing on uh, Vivian Lee in this film because uh, the last time I was a guest here, we did Vivian Lee's Gone with the Wind Year, oh, that's which right. is her, the movie that made her a star. And this was, no one was, knew it at the time, but her swan song. She was dying of tuberculosis while sm- filming all these smoking scenes. Yes, right. <laughs> so uh, she really did get a lot of my attention for that reason. Uh, well, it's funny that you mentioned uh, Vivian Lee because we were talking about Clark Gable, that episode. Apparently, like, his mouth was rotting and Vivian Lee, like, she did not show that on her face. So we were like, not just for the incredible performance, uh, of of, uh, of of Blanche, but also just for the fact that, um, you know, she didn't throw up working with Clark Gable. <laughs> and then I read this little fact about Ship of Fools, and we will get to Simone Signore. Uh, Vivian Lee was subject to bouts of depression and alcoholism and was abrasive to fellow actors during filming. There was a rocky start to her relationship with Lee Marvin, complaining that his stale alcohol breath was so distracting. Eventually, the two became highly unlikely good friends, um, and th- that ended up working out. But I literally just was like, oh my God, this bitch is subject to just rancid breath on movie sets all the time. Or, counter-argument, maybe she's just, like, not that into men. Because, honestly, <laughs> this was an unusually attractive year for leading leading Oscar winners. I mean, Julie Christie, we'll get to, and Lee Marvin, who, like Julie Christie, was in two Best Picture nominees this year. Right. I, and this was the one where he took off his shirt. Oh, yes. Also, Christopher Plummer was a snack in <laughs> The Sound of Music, and I was like, who is that? Yeah, but shirt on whole movie? Come on. <laughs> oh, I liked I liked his like angry daddy vibes where he was very <laughs> in control. I'm like, okay. Um, so um, Catherine Hepburn was actually the first choice of aging Southern Belle, uh, which is played by Vivian Lee uh, in this movie. But because of Spencer Tracy's bad health, she opted to continue to care for him and she was replaced by Vivian Lee. And the homoerotic nuance between uh, the captain, tra- played by Charles Carvin, and the ship's doctor, who was Simone Signore's, like, kind of 
you know. Paramour. Yes. Um, Walter Schumann, uh, played by Oscar Werner, uh, is introduced in the first love scene and reinforced in a way that Teal, the captain, meaningfully eyes Schumann, the doctor, throughout the voyage, indicating that the captain's feelings are not returned by Schumann. And he makes that comment at the beginning being like, you are the closest relationship I have with anybody in my life right now. And then he just kind of pretends like it didn't happen and then they move on. But talking about Simone Signore's addiction to the opiate or whatever like that, and you're saying that like you love the portrayal of that like in this time, I think for me, um, I'm just so used to movies like Requiem for a Dream Mm. or... um, Requiem for a dream. Where <laughs> it leaves an impression. It just leaves in such an impression where for me, it's just sort of like addiction doesn't really look like that. Like as an addict myself, it's just sort of like it was too Hollywoodified. But of course, for the 1960s um, and the censors, it's like they have to get a they have to find a way to get around those hurdles and to present that subject matter while still making it like, you know. Well, I mean, I'm. They d- sure, they don't show a needle in a vein or his name what the drug is, but I think for a woman of her social class, in terms of behavior and appearance, this might be what her kind of addiction would look like. And um, and I'm a huge fan of Simone Signore. I haven't seen the movie she won an Oscar for, Room at the Top, but um, this is how cool I am. In my early 20s, instead of having fun, I was having a French gangster movie phase, and I saw all of her greatest work. <laughs> oh, amazing. Yeah, this was my first English-language film I'd seen her in, and it was like visiting an old friend. I mean... She has that great movie star face of not just beautiful, but memorably beautiful in a way that's unlike other faces. So, true, you know, she, no one could ever mistake her for a background cast member. So <laughs> it's great casting because in an ensemble this big, you have to leave an impression. And she really does the moment you see her. We did that episode of Room at the Top. And I think that we both, me and my guest, I think my guest was Dan Dillabao that week. And I think we both picked Simone. Hmm. But it's a short performance in like, it's like maybe 20, 25 minutes in like a two hour film, but it was, it was good. It was memorable. Like I get why she won. I'll, I need to complete my Simone Signore education. I would, I would. It's, it's, it's very, very good to be um, honest with you though. Uh, it, I don't really understand her Oscar nomination in this movie. <laughs> like I really don't understand it just because like she, her husband's dead. Uh, her home in Cuba had been burned down. She's being sent to Spain to go to prison. She's addicted to opiates. It's at least give me bags under your eyes. Give me messy hair. Give me like you are so defeated by life that you're losing it on people. You're losing your temper. She just seems so like playing games with the doctor and being very flirty. I'm like, that would kind of just be the last thing on my mind at that point. And I don't know. I just didn't buy it. I didn't buy their relationship. And I'm not to, not to say, listen, I'm sure she did exactly what she was supposed to do. And I'm sure that uh, it, it's just, I didn't connect with the characters. Mm-hmm. I didn't connect with the love story. I just mm-hmm. didn't care. You know what? I I disagree. I really thought the love story was well-written. It's a big pet peeve of mine how many people in movies fall in love to montages because most writers are unlovable beasts and don't know how to fall in love. (laughs) This dialogue, I really bought. These are people getting to know each other and liking each other. Yeah. And um, when I looked at her performance, I saw 
a woman clinging on to the only thing she has left, which is the skills she's been taught all her life of acting like a lady. That's true. And I, to me, it read just right, especially since there must the temptation to chew the scenery when you're playing an addict is big, and she underplays everything, which I thought was just right. See, that's the thing. Yeah, well, and that's what I didn't like about it. <laughs> um, but of course, having obviously the tragic aspect to it, um, as we've learned from James Cameron's Titanic, <laughs> it makes it so much more interesting. Um, I also thought uh, that I thought a really wise choice was to still send her to prison. I thought, oh, maybe she's going to be like rescued mm-hmm. by this doctor. And um, by the way, the scene where he has a heart attack... Yeah, I understand why he was nominated for an Oscar because those kinds of scenes must be so ridiculous to act <laughs> out. And I think he did a pretty good job on the deck and and um, uh, the way that he was so like rude to his patient. He's mm-hmm. very much like, oh, I don't care. And then he just goes off and dies. I, I thought that was a... Um, uh, it was well acted. I, I enjoyed that. Um, but having seen Simone Signore in a room at the top, I will say that... This is only the second time that I've ever seen her in a film, so I'm not very familiar with her work like you are with French... Uh, you said mobster or gangster movies or... She is, she's in a lot of great French crime films, yeah. Okay, great. And it's like, you know, I'm not familiar with that. So for me, to see her in a room at the top and then to see her kind of in this, it's like I kind of um, see the journey for being nominated and winning for room at the top, a room at the top where um, for something like this, I just i am a little puzzled by it because I just frankly found Vivian Lee so much more interesting. Yeah, I mean, she she was a Hollywood star, and that's why she's in the leading category. This is category fraud, which, <laughs> oh, sorry, dare I mention it? It's the unspeakable. <laughs> oh, I never stop talking about it on this podcast, <laughs> let me tell you. I don't think there's one episode that goes by where I don't get pissed off about it. <laughs> I think everybody listening to this podcast is like, oh my God, is he talking about this again? Um, Viola Davis and Fences. Uh, <laughs> well, this is a rare year because the other four are unambiguous true leads. Yeah, right. That's that's true. Um, although, I actually would like to make something very clear, even though I did not care very much for Simone Signore in this film, and I didn't really... But I did enjoy the film. I actually very much enjoyed this entire year. Mm. There wasn't really one movie where really? I was like... Ter- I really enjoyed this year. Oh, wow. I really did. Last episode, maybe just because the last episode was so painful. It was like watching paint dry, every single film. Like, I don't know if you've seen Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, but Mm -hmm. it's not what I was expecting. Mm. And it's just, the whole point is that you're supposed to be kind of uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I don't enjoy movies like that. Mm. And it just, it's this never-ending domestic. (laughs) You know? Last time I was on the podcast, I was two for five with nominees I loved. This year, I'm up to three. Ooh, so we're on our way up. Maybe next will be four. (laughs) Or maybe we'll go down. We'll have to take, we'll have to take um, a tally. But that being said, though, um, I genuinely don't really have much else to say about this movie or about this performance. So unless you do, would you like to move on to our next nominee? All I'm saying is if Oscar Werner had taken off his shirt, maybe he would have won. <laughs> Let's move on. He was handsome. Uh, and he has a bag full of drugs. So I'm down. <laughs> I'm down. Uh, okay. Uh, Eliz- Let's talk about Elizabeth Hartman in a patch of blue. So we this, have to <laughs> this movie, this movie. So uh, very quickly, it's a, not fun. <laughs> a blind, uneducated white girl is befriended by a black man, Sid Light, played by Sidney Poitier, uh, becomes determined to help her escape her impoverished and abusive home life by introducing her to the outside world. And by outside world, it's basically just like 
a park and a grocery store. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The outside world. And in this movie, Elizabeth Hartman is this extremely tragic, tiny Tim Christmas Carol, God bless everyone type of character. They were laying it on so thick. How tragic she was. Her mother was a prostitute. Her grandfather, what was it? Big Paul, that she kept calling him, uh, you know, uh, also was, I don't know, I wouldn't say abusive, but like didn't really care about her because he is the grandfather, not the, it's, it's like... She's the the blind girl's like you know his daughter's problem, and then at one point like the other friend of the mother who's also a prostitute is like oh like we're gonna sell the blind girl into <laughs> prostitution and she's not gonna know about it. Also at one point you find out that the Elizabeth Hartman's character was like raped by one of the Johns. You're making this movie sound more fun than it is. I, it literally it lit the entire movie. It was just. They were laying it on so thick of how much of... It was basically like watching Lassie go through like a meat grinder. And you're just like, <laughs> you're just like, oh my God. And you're, you're just, it's so sad because it's the most adorable, sweet thing. Just suffering. And that was the entire movie. Yeah. Um, you just felt so bad for her where I was like, is this a very good performance? Or do I just feel so bad for her because she's so sickly sweet? Honestly, like, uh, you know, this should be remade, but just cast it as someone, you know, kicking a dog for 90 minutes. That's like a mild spin on it. I, uh, I wonder, like, so I hated this movie with a passion. Oh, my God. Okay. Tell me why. I, uh, I just, I feel so sorry for Sidney Poitier. Like, the, the Defiant <laughs> Ones is the great outlier, but nearly every movie of his, we can see it's well-meaning liberals in Hollywood trying to change people's minds in the Jim Crow racist years. 100%. And he, like, every Sidney Poitier vehicle, I can just sense the producers in the studio office calculating, let's cast him as a black man that no one can hate. And a new screenwriter gets a new way to challenge it. And it's um, it's amazing he withstood this with dignity, but... Yeah, this is, um, <laughs> I, I could barely pay attention to anything other than this calculation, the whole film, and I'm glad someone got an Oscar out of it. Yeah, right. Well, but she doesn't see color, so she <laughs> understands his character. And the thing is... Life is like blindness and racism. Yeah, it's like, you have, yeah, guess who's coming to dinner, to Sir with Love. You have all of these uh, movies, you're right, where you're, you are, and you're like, oh, but... The fact that Sidney Poitier did those moments obviously has its cultural benefits for white people. And they're like, wow, we're we're solving racism here. <laughs> but it's like uh, to uh, it's unfortunate that, yes, yeah, Sidney Poitier, that was kind of his job in a way that he was kind of responsible for for a little bit. But he he did change a lot of people's minds, you know? So it's like significant, it's historically significant, but I know exactly what you're saying. It's like, that sucks that you had to be that person to change people's minds. And and it worked. This movie was a huge hit. It played in the South. This probably did help open people's minds and convince some people to buy a ticket to a movie with a black leading actor they who 
previously would not have. Right. And I'd love to see it on the wall of a civil rights museum where I don't have to sit through the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> You'll notice I'm talking talking about Sidney Poitier because it's so sad talking about Elizabeth Hartman. I mean, it was funny when the movie opens and um, they're all just like super mad at her. The big pa and the prostitute played by uh, Shelley Winters. Uh, and... Uh, Oh, by the way, Shelley Winters hated that she won this Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. Um, she uh, became... So, okay, I'll read this before we get into it. But Shelley Winters hated her role as Roseanne primarily because as a supporter of the civil rights movement, she was very uncomfortable playing a racist. Well, you did a very good job. Uh, Winters was actually overwhelmed and speechless the night that she won the Oscar for Best Actress, uh, Best Supporting Actress. Um um, scenes of Sidney Poitier and Elizabeth Hartman kissing were uh, removed from the film when it was shown in theaters in the American South, where many states still had laws against what they called, quote, race mixing. That doesn't surprise me. Scenes of Sidney Poitier and Elizabeth Hartman. Oh, no, sorry. That was, I just repeated that. Mm-hmm. Uh, with her best actress in a supporting role win at the Academy Awards for her role in this film, Shelley Winters became the first actress to win the award twice. Uh, she had previously won the award for The Diary of Anne Frank. And as of 2018, only Diane Weist has matched this achievement. Mm-hmm. Patty Duke was originally offered the lead part of Selena Darcy, uh, played by Elizabeth uh, Hartman, uh, but her managers, John and Ethel Russ, did not want to, her to take the part because she felt that playing a blind person was so close to the time that she portrayed Helen Keller in The mm. Miracle Worker, uh, and that would stereotype her for future roles. And if you've ever seen The Miracle Worker with Anne Bancroft, uh, I understand why she won the Oscar in like 1963 or 1964, but to today's standards, let's call that performance a yikes. <laughs> um, it would not fly these days. But um, talking about one of the funniest things at the beginning of the movie, just how they were laying it on so thick. Of, because Elizabeth Hartman, Hartman is really just like the tragic blind Cinderella. Mm. That, that's really what it is here. And the movie opens with ridiculous questions coming from Big Paw going up to Elizabeth Hartman, the blind girl, mm. saying things like, have you seen my glasses? <laughs> it's like, Really? Have you seen my glasses? Like, that's the question you... Okay, I'm like, what is this movie? What is this shit? And it gets worse. <laughs> just the movie just keeps going and going. And I'm like... Because I felt so bad for her the whole time. I'm like... Sh-. But I'm like, is it from a wonderful performance? Or is it just because of the way that it's written that it's just so tragic that you feel so bad for her? I mean, this is basically pity, the movie. I mean, I don't think the director gave Elizabeth Hartman any note other than make them feel sad for you throughout and um i i just i don't know i made the mistake of watching the reading the trivia about uh, her life uh before watching the movie and now i can all i can see is a young woman's life being ruined so i like i maybe it's not fair to evaluate her performance based on um you know like this whole uh put upon person she, it, it, like she seemed to live it out unfortunately <laughs> well it's funny because Okay, first of all, why did we keep giving her that box of marbles every five <laughs> seconds? It was it became comedy at one point where it's like she somebody would come up to her and then like bump her and then she would drop the box of beads and then go she'd be like oh no mm-hmm. my box of beads what am I gonna do? They clean them all up and then they put them back in the box and then two seconds later she'd have it in front of the door and then somebody would like open the door and then boom the box of beads <laughs> fell on the fucking floor. She's like oh no my box of beads and I was like can we stop giving why is why is she in charge of this box? 
She goes to the park, and then how does she meet Sydney Poitier? Oops, Sydney Poitier hits the box, and boom, all the beads fall. In the I'm like, can, this is becoming so repetitive. It's literally becoming like a just for laughs gag. <laughs> I was like, this needs to stop. And I'm like, because you know, there's all those just for laughs gag where it's like a blind person fooling people in the park. I'm like, is that what this is? Like, dan and dan dan and like I. I, it became comedy at one point. I'd watch the Just for Laughs edit of this movie. That'd be great. <laughs> Wouldn't be that hard to make. Hey, do you think they let Shelley Winters keep her Oscar, or did they make her give it to Monique when she won? Because it's kind of the same thing for the same thing, right? <laughs> it is the same. That's really funny. Um, Thank you. I prepared that one in advance. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, I think that the only real conflict in the movie comes about 50 minutes in whenever you find out uh, that she has a friend named Pearl who is black and then uh, she doesn't realize that Sidney Poitier is black and she's like, oh, my mother wouldn't let me be friends with her because she's black and then you're like, oh, okay, now some things are starting to happen and the racism and uh, whatever. I also thought that I could have beefed up the relationship between Sidney Poitier and his brother other than him just coming in and being like, you don't get near that white girl and then he's like I know what I'm doing and then he's like okay bye <laughs> that was kind of it um, I wish they maybe beefed that up a little bit more yeah like maybe Sydney just put in his contract to hire one other black actor yeah <laughs> <laughs> probably um, uh, I found I will be honest with you I did find it to be a very emotional story uh, but again I don't know if that's from the performance I just yeah I I just felt angry at this movie's target audience and I thought like, oh, like what's wrong with you if you, do you go to the movies to feel good about how sad you feel about those less fortunate than you when you get to see them without any dignity? Just stop it. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> I love the way you put that. That's so true. You're mad at the target audience. I am. I hate them and I wish them better films. <laughs> and I get that. It's just sometimes, you know, art influences, uh, art influences life and I guess sometimes some of these kind of movies that we in modern times would roll our eyes at are necessary because they have to kind of educate stupid people. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess there's something to be said about the purpose of those films. Um, I mean, when you're revisiting any old movie that has a pro is a product of its times, the test it has to pass is sitting through this more satisfying than reading the Wikipedia page for it, and Patch of Blue fails. <laughs> I did read the Wikipedia page because I would kind of check out sometimes. I'm like, oh, what's happening? Um, I also found the ending to be a little unsatisfactory when she kind of just goes away to school for the blind. She forgets the music box and then no one's happy except for <laughs> you're like, okay, well, I was maybe hoping there would be a little bit more of a love story. Maybe they did that because they wanted the movie to sell. I don't know. Um, but then when she goes off to school for the blind and you're like, okay, I guess that's her happy ending because now she'll be educated. And Well, yeah, that's... That what are you talking about? They're, she couldn't have a happier ending than that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, okay. Um, but yeah, it's just, I know you hated this movie. I actually was not bored at all during this movie. I actually, I actually enjoyed this movie. I just found it to be way too sickly sweet. And like I said, it's, it was like Lassie going through a meat grinder and it, it, they just laid it on too thick for me. You know what a good version of this movie would have been? Start with her getting on that bus to school and tell all the abuse and backstory. Yes. Let her, sure. It's about to get better. Let's see how that happens. Tell us that story. That is so true. I actually, you're absolutely right. And then maybe uh, Sydney Poitier comes back into the picture and then maybe they like fall in love. I don't know. But I agree with you. That would have been a better way of doing it. One day they'll put me in charge. <laughs> um, well, you never know where Toronto comedy might lead you. <laughs> um, okay. 
So, okay, let's just, let's, let's just move on. Hey, Best Actress listeners. Enjoying the show? Want to hear more? Access our entire catalog of Best Actress episodes from the very beginning, ad-free, by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bestactress. By subscribing, you will also gain access to new episodes one day earlier than their normal release day. Best Actress Podcast will always have 10 free episodes available, but with the release of a new episode, the oldest will go to Patreon, where you can access it anytime with your subscription. Come on, ladies, it's a Fritz Bernays. It's no question. Visit patreon.com slash bestactress to subscribe. Let's talk about Samantha Egar in the movie The Collector. Mm. So... For the time, this movie was actually very fun. So obviously, many other versions have been done so much better, but this was a very fun, uh, dark movie for the time. Uh, so, so The Collector is a uh, about a man uh, that kidnaps a woman and holds her hostage just for the pleasure of having her there, and he actually, like, collects butterflies. And so the parallel is, oh, what if he's so crazy that... <gasps> He collects a human, mm. and he does, and um, that's why the movie is called The Collector. Good night. <laughs> and uh, this, this, I actually enjoyed this movie. I liked how I, I liked how um, dark it was. Obviously, having seen m- movies like Room or Silence of the Lambs, you know, um, this is a much tamer version of something mm-hmm. like that. But obviously this is probably one of the first of its kind to mm-hmm. present this as kind of the main um, story. I think Samantha Egar's performance is probably better in like the second chunk of the movie rather mm-hmm. than kind of the first, because uh, I think her initial reaction to being kidnapped was way too like, she was more like, inconvenienced than mm. she was like why am I trapped in somebody's basement right now I don't care how unfamiliar you, how unfamiliar you are with a kidnapping or not you would be terrified and panicked and my only other criticism of this movie and this isn't really on Samantha Egar but every single scene until pneumonia in the end she was flawless mm. she had gorgeous makeup she had boom like perfect hair mm-hmm. if you are kidnapped <laughs> and you are in a dingy basement you don't look like you're ready for the red carpet well hold on she had beauty products a mirror and not much to do i buy it <laughs> i thought that i I thought that same thing, but the timeline of the second and third day, she hadn't showered yet, or she hadn't <laughs> had a bath, and she still looked flawless. So I just, that was the one thing about the movie that I didn't enjoy. There was a little too much glamour for a kidnapping. But that being said, though, um, I really did get into the suspense of the film. I think Samantha Egar's character really becomes terrified and I really ended up enjoying this performance and I actually really enjoyed this film. It just took kind of a second to get there. Uh, what what did you think of the what did you think of Samantha Egar and what did you think of the movie? Yeah, uh, much like you I hated it for the first like 40 minutes or so because and it's not really the film's fault. I, in 2023 we've all seen plenty of horror thriller movies where we go through the logistics of kidnapping a victim and what, if you wake up in a dungeon and you've been uh, you know, uh, uh, kidnapped, uh, what do you do? How do you try to get out? And we see her go through all those at a slower pace than we'd accept today because this was the first time these audiences had seen this storyline. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm sympathetic. That was the correct way to tell the story in 1965. But now I'd want like a five-minute montage and then we'll get to the interesting part of the story. Once she 
stops trying to you know, escape from the dungeon, blah, 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 and starts trying to manipulate him psychologically to getting out. Then suddenly, the first 40 minutes of the movie, I see that there's one best actor and best actress at the Cannes Film Festival. And I'm like, what the fuck? But then I'm like, <laughs> oh, I get it. Okay, this is interesting. Yes. I would recommend to a modern audience watching this movie, but honestly, start watching it 30 minutes in. It's just boring till then. <laughs> I, yeah, because really what happens, he just stalks her, ethers her, puts her in the basement. And can I just say how crazy it is in 2023 that a movie with this premise was nominated for Best Director and Best Actress at the Oscars? Like, yeah. horror movies don't usually get that. I, I don't know how much of that is because this bias against thrillers for serious awards contention didn't exist yet, and how much of it was the clout of the director, William Wyler, right. who... Um, uh, he set the record that I think still holds for most Oscar nominations for director that year because he was nominated for this. Right. I mean, it's almost like if S- Steven Spielberg does like an amazing action film uh, at the Oscars, they're like, well, yeah, you're Steven Spielberg. Like, you need to be nominated for Indiana Jones. Yeah, if Paul Thomas Anderson made remade The Collector today, then he'd be on people's shortlist for a director nomination. That's about it. Yeah, right. Um couple things about this movie. So according to Terrence Stamp, Weiler wouldn't let Samantha Egger off set during the day. He also wouldn't allow her to eat with uh, anybody else during the lunch break. And Stamp argues that Weiler knew what he was doing as the director uh, whispered to him on day one said, I know that this looks cruel, but we're going to get a great performance out of her. And this film was cited by notorious serial killer Robert Berdella as the key inspiration for his crimes. Oh, that's gross. <laughs> that's really gross. Um, I didn't mean to laugh. That it's no, I know. And I was about, I was about to say, see, art uh, influences life. I'm like, oh no, that's terrible. That's that's awful. Um, I, I I note that there's two movies that we've watched that have like both British movies that are have satirical elements. Uh, where that rely on the device of voiceover narration that kind of contradicts the way we see the people behave, and we get um, we get to see their ironic delusion. It's lovely, and uh, I, I love how Terrence Stamp's narration at the end makes the point the movie is making, and it gets really chilling. I mean, this movie does have a lot to say about the society where you know it's an allegory of men seeing women as existing for their pleasure and satisfaction, and right. I. Um, the movie succeeds, although I'm not totally sure sometimes that Samantha Egger got that. <laughs> yeah, there there are two kind of performances in there. The first 40 minutes and then the the good part of the movie. <laughs> and I also, uh, um, a criticism uh, a movie, a, a criticism of the movie that I, I didn't in, enjoy, and I'm assuming this was uh, a directorial choice, was how whimsical the score of the movie was. Hmm. It seemed very whimsical and like triumphant, almost like um, they were going on like a quirky, like Wes Anderson adventure hmm. in the forest. Um, and it almost made uh, Terrence Stamp seem like I wouldn't say sympathetic, but it just almost made him seem like, no, this guy is not a murdering lunatic. He's just, you know, he's he's just a little weird. Like, he's just a little quirky. He's just a little strange. And I, I didn't enjoy that. I didn't enjoy the way that they were presenting him because it's 
abs- it should be absolutely terrifying. You see, to me, that made the movie interesting because the mu- the music of this film, which you're right, is totally dissonant with this dungeon in which a woman is being held against her will. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's a great dissonance, but the music exists at the layer of his self delusional narrative uh, narration. Right. Um, I mean, knowing that because of uh, because of the nature of the story, most of this movie has to be shot in a dank dungeon. Yeah. Uh, if I guess William Wilder really was making a choice to make sure it doesn't sound like a Vincent Price Catacombs movie because he has something more interesting to say. No, I get that. I just hated it. (laughs) I literally, I understood that that's what they were doing. I'm like, I fucking hate this. And then, uh, or if like we went back to Samantha Egar's character, maybe make the music more tragic in her scenes. I don't know. Let's have a balance there um, so that we could kind of just see the character's perspective. I just, that that was kind of the one part of the movie that I didn't um, enjoy terribly. Uh, I did think that it was so funny whenever uh, the neighbor comes over and you're like, oh, maybe he's going to find out that she's been kidnapped and because and, and she's all over the news and, and, and maybe this is going to be the moment. And she's taking a bath upstairs and she overflows the water and then the water starts like pouring down. And then he can, after he tells the neighbor that he's home alone and then he says, Oh, uh, I was lying. It's not my uh, cousin that's here. Because then he also says that he... So first he gets caught lying, Mm -hmm. saying that his cousin was here after he said that there was nobody. And then he says, oh, I was lying about not somebody being here. And I also was lying about the cousin. I have a woman here. And you know women. (laughs) Women can't fill up baths properly. (laughs) And there was this, like him and the neighbor having this like man to man, like women be shopping kind of like, Oh yeah, totally. And then he just leaves and accepts that as the answer. Oh no, that was, it wasn't because women have a propensity to overflow bathtubs. Although, you know, statistically maybe, um, (laughs) I mean, long hair, right? Uh, but, uh, no, I, I just, I mean, remember in 1965 how strong the taboo was against uh, unmarried couples being together alone. These hotels still had house detectives then. So that, oh he, my God. He said it's a woman, so he would understand immediately why I need you to leave and you cannot meet the other person who's here. Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. Because he said he was home alone, then there's someone here. He pretends it's a male cousin who's visiting. And then that's his explanation for lying about that. I am too smugly modern for this. I'm so sorry. I literally did not see that because I literally am like, oh, yeah, that's so funny because through my fucking modern lens, it just came off as like, oh, yeah, women, women, women be shopping. I have this gift for watching old movies through a trying to get laid prism. And like, (laughs) that's what he thinks he's doing. Oh, my God. I didn't even pick up on that. There's and that's the thing that I think is a thing that makes my podcast so biased because obviously it's coming from the perspective of a millennial, but also because of the fact that like, bitch, I have to watch fucking five movies. I don't have time to also do like a history lesson at the same time and understand the, 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 the context of every single like film. Like there are people like Brian Rowe or, or uh, be kind, rewind YouTube channels 
that are like some of my favorites that I would really recommend people check out where it's like they will literally there is an episode where it's Julie versus Julie mm. that I was literally listening to before I we were about to do this podcast about the historical context of why Julie Christie won over Julie Andrews because I mean let's be honest here that's really what this year is going to come down to um but uh uh I don't have, bitch, I don't got time for that. But that's so funny that you mentioned that because that did not occur to me because, uh, wow. And I'm wondering, oh God, what else am I missing in these movies? Because I, 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 it doesn't occur to me the, the social standards of the historical relevance of when this was made. And my favorite, my favorite thing about The Collector is that it won be- both acting awards at the Cannes Film Festival. Mm-hmm. That year, the Palme d'Or went to The Knack and How to Get It. The chairman, the chairperson of the jury that year was Olivia de Havilland, the first time it was a woman, and they gave all their big awards to movies about what they did not yet call rape culture. Wow. Okay. So women really take, took over uh, the Cannes Film Festival that year, and uh, Olivia de Havilland loved The Collector. I guess so. Um, I would say that one of my favorite scenes was the conversation about the catcher in the rye and the parallels of uh, the main character and uh, the collector, like not fitting into society and the way that he would not be able to discuss this book with Samantha Egar's friends because he is a person that does not fit into society and then he gets angry mm. and then because he has... Or sorry, because she has upset him. Um, her desperation comes in because they had an agreement that she, she was going to be let go after four weeks. But because of that conversation, he's not hmm. going to live up to his end of the bargain. And and she realizes, oh, shit, like, I think I'm going to die here. And that to me was kind of the best scene and, and one of the best performed scenes by Samantha Egar. Yeah, uh, I mean, to me... I wasn't that interested in her performance. All her choices were, to me, the most obvious choice. There was not much character to her character. I mean, it was she was more or less believable for the second half of the movie with some interesting dialogue. But uh, I would say that, you know, although I liked the movie, uh, she was, I would rank her my fourth out of the five uh, ahead of... Um, the one I've already forgotten from uh, Patchy Blue. Uh, <laughs> uh, Elizabeth Hartman. But tell me, do you think the Terrence Stamp... How gay do you think the villain in this movie is supposed to be? Because sometimes it's they seem to imply that he is holding in erotic desire for her, but at the same time, he collects butterflies. Yeah, I know. Beautiful bone structure. He looked like an evil ventriloquist doll. Mm-hmm. He looked or like a Victorian doll. Yeah, I. He was totally queer coded. Yeah, so I mean, but at the same time, if they hadn't, if they made that any clearer, I'd find the movie homophobic. <laughs> What's almost like psycho, right? I mean, wasn't Norman Bates like, I think the actor that played him was gay, right? Oh, Anthony Perkins was gay as hell, but his, um, <laughs> but he enjoyed peering on her in the shower. So he, <laughs> of course, Norman Bates was at least a little bit straight. A little bit. And I, this, I think this movie, The Collector is not homophobic because, like, Terrence Stamp is clearly getting a boner for her at least once, but he feels bad about it, so he's not gay, just repressed. But then again, <laughs> who collects things that much? Yeah. Who's straight? Come on. That's it's not a thing. That's very true. The, the straight men are not that organized. <laughs> that's so true. Um, uh, Terrence Stamp, though, uh, I mean, like, I actually got Samantha Egar's Oscar nomination maybe kind of near the end of the movie because 
I'm assuming not a lot of there's not really a lot of performances like this up in time up until this time in history, and also because of having a prestige actor like William Wyler attached to it, it gave it more mystique. Uh, oh, she dies at the end. Of course, she's nominated. Of course, she's nominated. But then Terrence Stamp, um, to me, was kind of the more interesting character. Maybe that's just because we're kind of going through like an anti-hero generation right now, like mm-hmm. where um, you know, like movies like Joker are going to win like Best Actor. Um, you know, uh, uh, but also at the same time, like I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't be mad if Terrence Stamp was like nominated here. I, I just, I thought um, he was kind of the, uh, probably the most interesting part of the movie. Um, and I wish I maybe knew a little bit more about his childhood. And uh, I was kind of a little, I had more questions about him than I did about her. Um, I enjoyed her performance, but I just like didn't really care about her that much. Yeah, I couldn't agree more that Terrence Stamp is the more interesting performance here. And um, I mean, that, you can't feel too bad for him. I mean, it's more, I think it's a more, dif- um, it's a more distinguished compliment to have won the Best Actor Award at Cannes than an Oscar. They give out <laughs> two of those a year, right? Um, but it is a bit surprising that the Academy viewers, the Academy members watched this movie and thought hers was the better, like, no, it must have been a very crowded male field this year because Christopher Plummer didn't get nominated either. I was wondering about that. Yeah, that, that was kind of weird to me. But, you know, I got to say, um, also, uh, just in terms of how kidnappings go, like, I have been in worse Airbnbs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I stay at hotels. I don't have to worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, maybe at Howard Johnson. <laughs> um, okay. Well, uh, a fun sort of thrilling movie, especially for the time. And, you know, you don't really see a lot of movies like that at this time. So I, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed this film and I enjoyed kind of the end of her um, performance and uh, you're right the way that um, it ends and then with like the creepy music because it is like joyful and triumphant the thing that I criticized it about it like it's like a full circle moment and then you see like okay like and now he's gonna go kill somebody else and yeah the only moment of the movie that really evoked a feeling of horror was the final yes yeah. where you realize you're watching footage of him stalking a woman about to do this again with the pleasant music by I think was it Henry Mancini I think it might have been Mancini who did this oh I'm not the person to ask and um <laughs> And his voiceover narration, making it clear that he has no idea what he's doing is wrong and does not think about other people. That was really chilling, and it was worth a slow start. Oh, absolutely. Um, I do. I do agree with you. Um, I enjoyed. I, I. I enjoyed this film. I enjoyed it, but I just. I have. I have my my criticism. <laughs> okay, so let's get to the moment that we've all been waiting for. Let's talk Epic about SmackDown. Yes, let's talk about Julie Andrews and the Sound of Music. A young novice is sent by her convent in 1930s Austria to become a governess to the seven children of a widow of a widowed naval officer played by Christopher Plummer. And I am going to elicit the gay gasp. I have never seen the Sound of Music. I have seen Mary Poppins. Listeners, if that applies to you too, don't let anyone take that away from you. Yeah. <laughs> I have seen Mary Poppins. We did that year. I have no idea why she won that movie for that role. of. I understand that Mary Poppins is iconic, but I hated how incredibly perfect Mary Poppins was. And the the singing and the dancing for me went on too long. Mm -hmm. I do not like musicals. 
But when I watched The Sound of Music, because Julie Andrews had just won the year before for Mary Poppins. For playing a governess. Imagine that. Yes. Um, when I saw her in this movie, I was like, oh, this is what she should have won for. Because she's Mary Poppins, but she's not perfect. Mm. And this is what I wanted for Mary Poppins. Because she was so sickly sweet in Mary Poppins. And she was so perfect. Of course, the singing, the dancing, it's all amazing. It's iconic. But I don't want that from an, from an Oscar-winning performance. I need mm. to see some drama. Yeah. I need to see some conflict. I need to see layers to your character. And Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music, this is exactly what I wanted for Mary Poppins. And in this movie, Okay, like I said, I do not care for musicals. I fucking loved this movie. It was three hours long. I was never bored. Also, watching it, I have finally understood so many pop culture references from my childhood. From There's an episode of uh, Will and Grace called Von Trapped <laughs> in the movie theater. And I remember now I, like, I got all the lines and all the... There are songs in here like... I didn't even know where from the like climb every mountain. <laughs> I didn't know that that was from because that was in American Dad, and I'm just like, oh my god, I totally get it. Julie Andrews is amazing in this movie. Um, I loved all the singing. I loved all the dancing. Um, I get it. I get it. I get it. Okay, now I've said my piece. Now, what do you, what did you what do you think of the sound of music, and what do you think of Julie Andrews? Well, if you've been counting, you know there's only one movie left I hated, and it's not Darling. <laughs> uh, so fuck this movie. Oh my god, really? <laughs> I I I'd seen it as a child, and this is, revisited it as a grown up, and um, I I my experience rewatching it was adorable but tiring because. Um, I watched it with my boyfriend, and it's his like favorite movie of all time. So oh. I had someone singing along next to me with like um, a, a deep, hoarse South African accent, uh, constantly looking at me to see, "Aren't you having fun?" And I was not. <laughs> um, I don't love the songs. It's also cloying. Um, where to start? Okay, here's my first <laughs> note on The Sound of Music. Storytelling economy. You're telling a World War II story that includes a perilous border crossing, and you've somehow written in seven children, and they're all alive at the end? Yeah, right. Did you not create cannon fodder? Come on. <laughs> well, apparently this is based on a true story. In the true story, there were only four. That was enough. Oh, uh, yeah. Seven, that's... Get out the get the fuck out of here. Yeah, like why include why write more children if you're not gonna kill a few? <laughs> Give us, you, you say you want conflict, I want conflict. Um, I loved uh, whenever they're singing. How do you solve a problem like Maria? Because they're basically just throwing shade at her and talking <laughs> so much shit about her at the very beginning. But then I remember there's actually an SNL sketch with Ariana Grande and she plays Maria and she comes into the nuns and she's like. Wow. She's like, you're all just standing around talking <laughs> shit about me. And they're like defending it. And that I'm sounds like, so much better than the movie. Yeah, it's actually really funny. Anybody listening, just Google it. it, it it's very readily available online. It's actually a very funny sketch. Um, yep, never saw Christopher Plummer look like such a snack before. <laughs> um, uh, like I said, yeah. She's, Not even beginners? <laughs> yeah, that's, no. Uh, uh, maybe later in life. I'll let you know. Um <laughs> Be but, the grandpa dick. Yes. But, you know, in this movie, she's not like a regular governess. She's a cool governess. You know, do you kids need anything? Some snacks? A condom? Let me know. <laughs> um, when she gets out of the lake and she kind of like sasses him um, after being employed for a day. 
and like telling him how she should be raising his kids and stuff like that. I thought that was a bold choice. Um, but he had, I already, you know, grown accustomed to her face. So <laughs> he like lets her get away with it. I enjoyed their chemistry. I loved all the singing. I loved all the dancing. I loved that, you know, she wasn't perfect and she was <laughs> kind of annoying at times. And, uh, just in terms of what this movie, I enjoyed the cinematography, the sweeping landscapes. Mm-hmm. I, it, it, just in terms of how the cinematography, it, it, or cinematography, just in terms of how this mus- musical is presented and how it's supposed to be received as a person that doesn't enjoy musicals, mm-hmm. I just really enjoyed it and I appreciate it for what it is. And I just, I realized that we're not talking about Mary Poppins, but just because she had just won the year before, it's kind of hard not to compare because it's the same fucking role. The only difference (laughs) is just that this time she's, um, she has flaws where the other time she was magical. And so for me, it's kind of hard not to bring up Mary Poppins. It's just that, uh, this is so much better and it's just, I enjoy it so much more and I, I get this movie and I get what it was trying to, how it was trying to be presented. And I just, I totally get it. I disagree so hard. <laughs> I thought, like, I'm very glad she won for Mary Poppins. She was playing a superhuman character in a way that, like, she did the assignment, and it's a rare assignment. Here she's trying to play a three-dimensional human being, and I don't buy it. I think she's miscast in the role because Julie Andrews can only do poise. She can own, like, I don't buy her as a vulnerable person who realizes she has a lot to learn. I loved all the nuns except her. Those are my favorite parts of the movie. Sure. I love the, um, I, I wonder if this was Julie Andrews' newfound star diva power that no other woman could have a good close-up because <laughs> the Mother Superior Nun delivers her big climb every mountain yep. song and in total darkness with a tiny beam of light eliminating her chin. Yes. Yeah, and they nominated that. her anyway. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Julie Andrews, don't be a bitch. Like, let your, like, let, let, let the old woman have a spotlight too. Come on. Well, this is at the height of exploitation, So that's what <laughs> that was. Also, the fact that you said that Julie, uh, uh, Julie Andrews was miscast in this role, that would elicit the gay gasp if, if anything was said on this podcast. Um, well, I mean, honestly, I think they should have just, uh, you know, given uh, Julie Andrews another insult and given the role to Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> well, oh, yeah, right. For the second time. Uh, it's funny. Just dub her, it's fine. Yeah, it's, that's, <laughs> that's right. Oh, yeah, Julie Andrews being dubbed, absolutely not. Um, <clears throat> I do think it was kind of, for the purpose of the story, a little silly whenever she becomes romantically interested in Captain Von Trapp, but then that, like, other rich countess from, like, was it Italy mm. or wherever it was that she was from comes in and is like taking her man. Yeah, yeah. And then she runs back to the Abbey. And I thought it was just kind of silly the way that mother Abess, the climb every mountain and swim every stream or whatever. I thought that was odd because you don't really find a lot of conservative religious people into exploring freedoms. Mm. So I thought that that was just kind of a weird choice. Again, these are just my criticisms of the <laughs> movies. Uh, the ones who actually read the manual do, but go on. Yeah, right, right. Um, and I enjoy the way that she's like just very upset by the engagement, but she also has to accept that that's the way that it is because she has chosen a life of religion and him being married to God. But then in the end, she actually does get married to Captain Von Trapp. And then um, I love that they brought the Nazis in at that point, because at that point we're getting back into everything is too perfect moment where it's like, 
they're singing every day and everything is sickly sweet. And I'm like, oh God, where is this going? But then when you have... Um, you need some schnitzel with your strudel. Yeah, right. Um, oh, by the way, whenever they're doing that talent competition and then like the Von Trapp family wins the talent competition, I wanted them to come in second place and then have like the camera on Julie Andrews' character so that she can have her like Faith Hill at the Country Music Awards where she thought she was going to win and she didn't and she freaks out on camera. <laughs> I, If you have never seen that, you got go to YouTube, look it up. It is as entertaining and juicy as you think that it is. Um I thought that would have been really funny, but the 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 Nazis coming in and adding to that level of uh, um, anxiety like made the movie even more interesting, uh, especially for maybe the non-musical people because musicals are always about like perfection, like fun and happy, and so just to sort of see like now we're heading into the Holocaust. It's like a dark. Yeah, I. Although to be honest, I like a long-standing trend in cinema that I, and. Well, all, all stories that I really resent is if you need an easy and simple, uh, unnuanced heroes and villains story, then just set it in the 40s and bam, you've got Nazis. And this was one of the beginnings of that. I, I This is a movie for children in every way because there's no moral complexity to just about anything. Um, <laughs> I am not giving the movie enough credit, though, because rewatching it as an adult, I um, much like in Ship of Fools with the romance between Signore and Werner, I... Uh, I was surprised how nuanced and well-written and well-acted by Christopher Plummer, I think, all the non-singing scenes were about the development of the relationship. That was more grown-up than I remembered, and I really enjoyed it. But I would have bought their love story more if Julie Andrews, if, if the actress playing Maria were capable of playing a mess. <laughs> this woman is supposed to be a messy person, chaotic, not poised, Ever, maybe learning to be poised as she adapts to this new up, upper class environment and falls in love with a man who needs that. Yeah. Um, but not having it to start. Um, I couldn't help watching this and thinking, you know who in 1965 at age 25 would have had the guileless innocence and also the poise to tackle this role? Julie fucking Christie. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Uh, well, we'll use that as a jumping off point. But before we do switch over, I just have a couple of facts. Obviously, there was like 300 facts. These are just the ones <laughs> that like I picked out. So if you want to learn more, uh, go to your local library. Google it. Um... The movie's not the chore I make it sound like. I'm just punching up. It's one of the world's, is one of the biggest hits of all time. Julie Andrews is thriving. Uh, they can take some criticism. <laughs> Christopher Plummer intensely disliked working on this movie. He was known to refer to it as the sound of mucus. Um, A man of taste. Yes, or S&M. Um, and uh, he didn't really like working with Julie Andrews. Uh, he said it was like being hit over the head with a big Valentine's Day card every day. <laughs> Nonetheless, he and Andrews remained close friends until his death. Andrews claimed that Plummer's cynicism probably helped his performance in this movie, keeping uh, him from being too sentimental. When Maria is running through the courtyard to the Von Trapp house in the I have confidence, and she actually she trips. Okay, uh, this was actually an accident, but the producer and director Robert Wise liked it so much that he kept it in the movie. He felt that it added to the nervousness of the song and of the character. As part of his research for this movie, William Wyler met with the real Maria Von Trapp. Wait, William Wyler? Research? Why did he say William Wyler? Was he going to be the original director, but then he decided, I want something edgy? I don't know. Well, maybe that is... 
a mistake. Maybe that was supposed to say Robert Wise. Anyway, it says William Wyler here. Uh, met with the real Maria von Trapp and the mayor of Salzburg. Wyler was concerned that the local residents would be alarmed at seeing their buildings draped with Nazi flags and seeing stormtroopers in the streets only 25 years after the real thing had taken place. The mayor assured him that the residents had managed to live through the Anschluss the first time and would survive it again. Other city officials were much more resistant to the idea of decorating Salzburg with Nazi colors. They soon changed their minds when the filmmakers said that they would use newsreel footage instead. The footage was actually highly incriminating, however, as it showed the Salzburgers openly welcoming the Nazis and something that the proposed scenes for this movie would not do. And the day after the Von Trapp family left, Austria. They actually left by train to Italy, not trekking over the mountains to Switzerland as this movie depicts. Adolf Hitler ordered the borders of Austria to be shut. Um, so just as, before we close the chapter on Julie Andrews here, uh, I very much enjoyed all the singing. I enjoyed all the dancing and I just enjoyed seeing an imperfect Mary Poppins because let's be honest here, this is really another, uh, this is like, Mary Poppins part two. Like <laughs> it's, it's kind of the same thing. And so obviously I think she was perfect for the role because this is the type of movie that they wanted to make. Um, so I just, I get it and I enjoyed it. What would you like to say before we close off on Julie Andrews? Just, I, I agree that Maria Von Trapp nays something else. We never find out her maiden name, do we? Uh, <laughs> she's imperfect on paper, but I thought Julie Andrews was incapable of playing her that way. Okay. <laughs> Fighting words. Uh, okay, so let's talk about your absolute favorite, Julie Christie in the movie Darling. So <clears throat> very quickly, a beautiful but amoral model, uh, Diana Scott, sleeps her way to the top of the London fashion scene at the height of the swinging 60s in the swinging 60s Lon London. And um, okay, so first of all, uh, I enjoy... Don't get, I enjoy a hoe. Okay, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm a hoe myself. I'm very pro hoe. And if you got to sleep your way to the top, I also am very pro this. <laughs> I just didn't care about this girl at all. And the idea of the swinging 60s, apparently it was this thing that America truly latched onto, but apparently like this image of the swinging 60s uh, was really just like a couple of streets that were very colorful in yeah. London and everyone just thought, oh my God, this is what London is like. So it was more like the swinging 60s moment was more of like a fantasy and it was, America was obsessed with it. In come Julie Christie, she embodies that swinging 60s glamour and it adds to this performance and it kind of punctuates it talking about the fantasy because you here you have this model who is just like stunning and she is being in movies and she she's on television and she's in commercials and stuff like that and everything kind of just like works out from her and the biggest issue that she has is that she can't find a husband that she likes <laughs> and you're like Okay. Uh, and again, like, it's like, I'm not, I'm not mad at that. Like, I'm not mad at any of it. I didn't hate this movie. I just didn't really care. Like, I didn't necessarily find it boring, but I also didn't really find it that entertaining. Oh, oh. Darling should have won Best Picture. I need to explain <laughs> why. This, uh, okay, first of all, 
I remember in Ship of Fools, there was one scene that coyly may have had a gay reference. Imagine the same. Right. Imagine what it felt like to be a gay man in London in 1965 watching this in a theater and getting all the references, which we do not. Right. This is a skewering of contemporary London culture that with like in jokes that we don't get. The dialogue is rapid fire. It's such a smart movie. Um, and my favorite moment in the movie is when okay, this is an extremely gay movie. There's an openly gay character in it in 1965, which is not, you know, extremely ahead of its time. Uh, John Schlesinger, the director is gay. Uh, Dirk Bogard, the leading man, uh, openly gay legend, my all time favorite actual gay crush. I think him or Emperor Hannibal or, uh, Jesus, um, <laughs> like Jesus. But um, I think that. Do you remember the scene when they're doing the man on the street interviews in London, where Dirk Bogart is yeah. playing a TV presenter on contemporary culture? Yeah. And they interview a man on the street, and he says the biggest problem in society is homosexuality, which is rife now more than ever. Yes. And that wasn't an actor. That was the most poised and well-adjusted homosexual that then to exist, just taking the abuse. Like, what a great scene. I, I love that you brought that up because that was one of the uh, the Vox Pop TV interviews conducted by Dirk uh, Bogart's character uh, were all real. <laughs> and that was one of the facts that I have for this uh, movie because I think they kept that in there because homosexuality in the UK had been decriminalized, mm. like, not that long after or before sorry thanks to social attitudes changing as a result of the film victim starring dirk bogard oh that's amazing so he's like you're welcome Wait, <laughs> so like did this guy exactly. not know who dirk bogard was clearly not clearly not clearly not and so i remember when that part happened i was like oh wow i was like that's that's that doesn't age well but um understanding that the, the director and that this actor was gay i i, I do love that moment i did also, what did I write down here? I wrote down, um, I feel like this was a modern take for the time uh, in many ways, not even, not because she's obviously like using her, her femininity and her glamour, her sexuality as a way to get what she wants in life, but they don't present it as sort of like a, as like a slut shamey. Well, they don't not not, but at the same time, like talking about Elizabeth Taylor and Butterfield 8, for example, where they're like, we need to kill you now. <laughs> uh, but like in this, it just sort of seems like she weaponizes her femininity to get what she wants. Mm -hmm. And also, yeah, the relationship with the gays and how she makes a joke about, oh, we don't have any time for those disgusting affairs of yours. <laughs> you know, and I kind of like the the humor that she had. And at one point she's like sunbathing with like a couple of queens like in <laughs> Italy. And yeah, of, I, I am not because talking about how I don't understand historical um, context all the time. Even I watching this was like, okay, wow, that that's a big deal. Mm. Uh, that's a big deal. And I, 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 I get that. I still don't care. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I still just don't care about this character. And, and she, she becomes she, at one point at literally at literally at one point um, she was like, okay, where did I write this down? At one point, she goes off and she's just bored in London. And then she's just like, oh my God, screw it. I'm going to go become a princess. Mm -hmm. She literally becomes a princess in Italy. And she's just like, oh my God. I was just, yeah, like, is she going to be a princess? Mm -hmm. uh, she reminds me of like Alexis from Schitt's Creek or something like that. And, and I don't, like, I just, it's, it's a, fine performance i enjoyed the way that she reacts at the very end whenever uh her and and dirk 
Bogart because he's her ex-husband. He uses her just like the way that she used him to kind of get ahead. He uses her for sex and then like, even because he knew that she was like a princess and then he kicks her out of the car and that was his revenge and the way that she's so hysterical in the car and she opens, was this movie a comedy? Because that, that was kind of funny to me. Well, this movie was definitely not a comedy. <laughs> the way I see it, there are two great performances of great actresses playing bad actresses. One comedic, one dramatic. The comedic one is, of course, Jennifer Tilly in Bullets Over Broadway. And this is the great dramatic one. Um, Ju- the, the Julie Christie's character in this movie is performing most of the time, and she's not very smart and not that good at it. I love the distinction between how she performs at parties, how she's playing the actress model role, how she's adapting to the upper classes when she becomes a princess. She never seems comfortable. She's a bit stiff. She's all surface. She has nothing interesting to say. She's only she only seems like a smart person being her authentic self when she's seducing someone or seeing what she can get with her looks. And it's amazing to watch this come across. I don't think Darling comes across as a misogynistic movie. And I think that's all credit to Julie Christie being interesting and making, well, I, I mean, I accepted her as a flawed human being and did care about the character. Uh, she seemed like a real human being to me making mistakes and it was fascinating to watch. Um, but, um, oh, I lost my train of thought. Funny how that happens. Oh yeah. Uh, she's a bad actress because she's just not that talented. And Julie Christie understood that. And this is on paper, a very misogynistic film. Did you, did you read about the origin of the story? How no. John Schlesinger heard someone basically telling a story about another woman and he was complaining about this girl who dumped him basically. Oh yeah. Actually, sorry. I have that written down here. <laughs> so this movie is, you know, indirectly based on some guy bitching about a slut at a party. Yeah. And they adapted it to a film and that it doesn't read like a just uh, anti-woman screed is, you know, I think with a different performance it could have. Right. I do think that what anchors that for me or as an audience member, because, uh, and her being like, I'm not really that talented. I'm not, is the scene where she actually goes to a theater to audition Mm -hmm. and then she leaves because she's like, yeah, this is not me. I can't do this. And then she goes to some... Who was it that she went to? It was some casting director or she went to, she just was like, no, I know I'm going to stay in my lane. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to do what I do and fuck you. I don't care. And I, I like that. Yeah. And that was one of her best moments in the movement. I like to be, this movie must've been so difficult to cast because the actress has to be uh, conventionally beautiful. Like a, if, if you're the sort of person who rates someone's looks out of 10, you need a, 10 or the story doesn't make sense yeah but it's got to be someone with the emotional intelligence to know how to play this moment of cowardice and realizing that you're not who you thought you were right um yeah it's i did actually write that down about john schlesinger uh with a letter a brief acting role it was somebody that television personality Godfrey Wynn had known. And I guess he was talking shit about this girl. So John Schlesinger made a movie about this girl that you were just mentioning. Um, I also um, just think that she was just kind of an awful person. Like she just kind of, 
not even just because she was like a homewrecker and like knew that people were like married and had kids. It, it just sort of seemed like she just was very selfish and she just kind of was like, well, I don't really care that you're married and you have kids. Like, I'm just going to do this um, kind of anyway. But it's interesting the way that they don't present her as a villain. And I think that you're right where you're saying like that's credit to Julie Christie's performance of the character. And also the brilliant use of, even better than the collector, the voiceover narration in Julie Christie's voice, tell, you get to see how she's rationalizing her behavior to herself uh, because the premise of the movie, we never we never see the framing device, but I think it's implied that the voiceover is an interview with a magazine because she's made it, and later we find out it's because she is a ro- an Italian royal. Um, but she's, she's just... Um, I lost it. I was going to say something very smart about Julie Christie. Let me move to, why do you think the movie is in black and white, and did that frustrate you? Um, apparently, that actually like lended to the way that the movie was received. Um, I didn't really pay attention to whether or not the cinematography, if I cared about it, because I was genuinely, in the entire movie, trying to figure out if I even cared about the character because I kept telling myself, I was like, well, I'm not bored and I do enjoy this film, but I don't really love this film and I don't really love this character, but I also don't hate this character. I was just so beige Mm -hmm. the entire time. Like I was just very indifferent toward her and toward the movie. I think this movie, I, I wish I'd had a chance to see this on the big screen because I think it would benefit from not having any distractions about because the dialogue is dense and a lot of things are happening fast and they don't hold your hand. And I remember what I was going to say earlier. I loved how her voiceover narration sometimes explicitly says she doesn't do things we watch her doing. Like when she says, I never wanted to be a homewrecker and we see her with binoculars spying on her boyfriend's wife from across the street to see if uh, she can like lure him out of the house. And I never got jealous. And then she'd be like, why were you talking to her today? That's why I was wondering if it was a comedy. I guess, you know, again, I'd be very curious to know how much laughter there was in the theater in London in 1965. Right. But today... I, it never the movie never made me laugh, but it worked straight ahead as a very interesting character study drama from start to finish, and I felt very frustrated not seeing the colors because if this movie were in color, set in the fashion world in London yeah. in 1965, this would be such a colorful movie. But I think it was the right choice because that's all we'd remember about it. Well, I do enjoy the fact that like for the time, this would have been like very like whoa, like risque, like modern, yes. and I can appreciate that. Um, it's just, again, like, I'm just, I just don't care. Like, I just, about the character or about, I just didn't truly get into this movie very much. I just didn't find it compelling. I just, yeah. It's not Julie Christie's best work or best role, uh, but I think that it's, few films have ever done a job this good of capturing a slight, like, a snapshot of their times and culture. So even if the movie doesn't, compel you start to finish darling if you, if you want to know what life was like among hip people in london in 65 there's no better movie you could watch oh i love that um i think away from her is the best performance i've ever seen from from julie christie and i think she probably should have won that oscar um but okay i i think that we've reached the point where we should um 
select who we think that the Oscars should have gone to. This has actually been a very fun episode because you and I just simply don't agree on anything. <laughs> Finally. And, and Conflict. I, you yes, love it. I, and I, I, that's what I want. And I, I think that people listening, it, it, it's, it, and I, this is what I love so much about this podcast is it's truly just about personal taste. And, um, you know, I, I think that anybody listening, I'm hoping that there are people that agree with me and then I'm hoping that there are people that agree with you. And then, um, it's just, there's a little bit of, uh, something for everybody, you know, listening to this because, uh, we had such different opinions, but I don't really know if this is going to be a big shocker of who we think that the Oscars should have gone to, but you are my guest of honor. So please reveal who you think that the Oscars should have gone to first. I believe the Oscars should have gone to... Vivian Lee for Ship of Fools. I mean, she was the Daniel Day-Lewis of her time. She laid the template for his career. They didn't know it was her last rule. Two Oscars is not enough. Julie Christie would have had other chances. I'm just being contrarian because I like to be, but obviously this is a year I think the Academy got it very right. What I love about Julie Christie here is how... She was, if no actress has ever had a better year than Julie Christie in 1965, she was the lead in two Best Picture nominees. Mm. The other one, Dr. Zhivago, one of the biggest box office hits of all time, right. but they nominated her for the edgy art movie. Um, and if you look at the five, it's interesting how different the five Best Actress nominees had for careers. You've got the uh, foreign film Ingenue, uh, straight from France. You've got the tragic train wreck, unfortunately. Uh, you've got the slightly successful middling actress who went on to other horror movies. You've got Julie Andrews, who I think is the cursed one. That's the worst career an actress can have. Two identical roles that are iconic, typecast, you can never play in a grown-up movie the rest of your life. All right. Julie Christie had it all. Glamour. Sexy Boyfriends, a long and artistically creative, uh, fulfilling career. And at, in 1965, there was no bigger star in the world. There was no bigger star in the world. And she was the face of kind of the, yeah, the obsession with the swinging 60s London. Uh, but I mean, like, what's Julie Andrews also was in um, Victor Victoria. So that mm -hmm. was like a little bit more. But that was also a musical as well. But um I'm not really shocked that you said that. <laughs> and I'm very curious who you would have voted for if you'd been an Oscar voter. Oh, yeah. Well, if, okay. So I think that the Oscars should have gone to... Julie Andrews for The Sound of Music. I don't understand why she won for um, Mary Poppins. I found her to be... Obviously, the singing and the dancing is iconic, but I, I didn't... I've never seen it before. I think you have to see it at a certain age to appreciate it. Um, and I didn't enjoy it. But then with The Sound of Music, you know, I thought maybe this is one of those moments where you do have to be of a certain age to appreciate it, like, because it's a musical and there's a bunch of kids in it. So I know that that song, like, so long, <laughs> like, I know that that's in there. And I'm like, oh, God, here we go. And when I watched the movie, I was delightfully surprised. Bitch, this movie is three hours long <laughs> and I fucking hate musicals. And I really enjoyed it. And I, I, I really, um, I... This is the performance that I want from from Julie Andrews because she's such a powerhouse. And and just, I realized that this isn't like uh, Mary Poppins was even in this category, but it's very difficult for me to not compare the two because she had just previously won the year before because if this is the same role. It's just, this is what I wanted from Mary Poppins and she had won the year before and I thought that was stupid. So I would have probably said Julie Christie if I cared. <laughs> uh, I just really didn't care about this movie and I just really didn't care about this performance. Not to say that it was a bad one. I, I just 
didn't connect with it. And I just simply, based on personal taste, loved the sound of music, loved Julie Andrews' performance, and uh, I wouldn't even be mad at a rewatch. And I think that that is such a compliment be- to her because I hate musicals. So for me, it's it's Julie Andrews. Tell me this. Are you saying that knowing she won the Oscar the year before, like, do you think she should have won back-to-back? Or are you saying in your fantasy land where she didn't win for that? Uh I think Julie Andrews should have one Oscar. Okay. I don't think she should have two. If she, if, if you'd been an Oscar voter, knowing she won last year, who would you have voted for? Uh, Still uh, Julie Andrews? Julie. Uh, uh, oh my God, who would it be? Uh, if I if I knew that, that she had like just won, and she basically had accomplished... God. Yeah, I guess I would have given it to Julie Christie. <laughs> Yay! I would have, if, because if I was an Academy voter at that time, because it's like, well, you literally just won an Oscar for that same thing, but this is a better version of what you just did. Yeah, you finally earned the Oscar you got, is what you think. Well, I mean, if Meryl Streep, after winning for, like, Sophie's Choice, came out with, like, another Holocaust movie, but, like, in this movie, she spoke six languages, and then they were like, wow, this is an even better Sophie you know, would you give her the Oscar? Like, probably not. Um, or maybe, I don't know. But yeah. But well, Oh, sorry. For the record, I don't think Julie Andrews should have won, even if she hadn't already had an Oscar. And in my fantasy world where Vivian Lee wins, Julie Christie would later win for either McCabe and Mrs. Miller or Shampoo. I recommend those highly to further your Julie Christie education. I hated McCabe and Mrs. I hated her <laughs> performance in McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I It was like 20 minutes long. I couldn't stand it. I really, away from her to me. And there was that like 90s movie that she was nominated for that you can literally watch on uh, Tubi that like free streaming at it. It's like a Canadian Affliction. movie. No, um, Afterglow. After, oh my yeah, God. Yeah, I didn't like that one. That was one of the most <laughs> I, confusing Oscar nominations. But anyway, that we're we're getting off track here. <laughs> it For me, the winner, it, just personal taste, is Julie Andrews of the Sound of Music. And you know what? It was a real joy to spend this much time in 1965 and get a snapshot of the times. Like what an extreme range of levels of edge and sophistication, right? You got family movies and you've got like extremely daring and people being kidnapped and dying. Yeah. And now we're back to 2023 and much worse problems. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, uh, Joe, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. Where can people find you on social media? Uh, my Insta is Joe Arsenal Jokes. Uh, when I uh, uh, end my month-long travels and return to performing comedy, uh, you will see where there. Uh, in the meantime, it'll just be me letting people I know I'm still alive. I love that. Okay, thank you so much for being a guest, and we'll definitely have to have you back again. Bye. Look forward to it. Bye. Did you enjoy the show? Want to hear more episodes? Visit patreon.com slash bestactress to access our entire catalog of episodes ad-free with your subscription. Subscribers also get access to new episodes one day earlier than everyone else. Oh my god. Go to patreon.com slash bestactress to subscribe, and I will see you all at Howard's Inn.